Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Abba, Father, we look to you, and we ask you to open our hearts and minds beyond words, beyond speech. May your word come with power. May your word burn in our hearts. May your fire purify us. May your fire ignite us afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start in Acts chapter 2, a familiar passage. And then we're going to go through a bunch of references that I'll just cite as we're going. Acts chapter 2. And and this is the moment when the Holy Spirit is poured out. Jesus has died on the cross. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended to heaven. He's given his disciples a mission to go and make disciples of the whole world. You go and multiply throughout the whole world. But don't go anywhere. Luke 24, 49. Don't leave Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. You cannot complete the mission without the power of the Holy Spirit. So they are waiting. They are praying. They are earnestly seeking God over a 10-day period. And then... The day of Pentecost, the beginning of the Feast of Pentecost, Shavuot in Hebrew, the Feast of Weeks, it says this, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Early in Acts 1.14, it says they were continuously praying, and there were 120 that had gathered together. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, these disciples were not waiting to be revived. They had been meeting with Jesus. Their lives belonged to him. They were ready to give their lives in his service. But this was the time of empowering. This was the time of visitation. And and in many ways, this, this bears the marks of visitation through history where God comes in unusual ways. And God comes with force. He comes with power. Notice first that he comes suddenly. I don't know about you, but I would like to know when someone is coming. If someone's flying in, I'm supposed to pick them up at the airport. I want to know when the plane is coming. If you're doing a a workout routine and you've got to do certain exercises, okay, how long do I do this? If the Lord calls you to fast for a breakthrough, okay, how long do I fast? You know, we, we like to have targets. We like to have schedules. But you can't schedule a revival. You you can't organize visitation. But the fact is, when God comes suddenly, that means at any moment he could come. You don't know when exactly. You can't plan it out to the minute. Okay, Lord, this would be a lovely day for revival. We have nothing else on the schedule. Everything is free. Let's have revival. you, You can't do that. And often you're crying out, you're praying, you want to see breakthrough, you know there must be more. But there's this longing, and and you know it, it could happen any moment. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. You might think that perhaps God would come in a more gentle way, a more quiet way, like like Psalm 23. 
leading us beside the still waters, oh. causing us to lie down in green pastures. Oh, beautiful. But when you need to be revived, when the church needs to be shaken, you don't come like a quiet breeze. If you need the alarm in the morning, the alarm does not come as a, as a gentle, it's not a gentle sound, just puts you back to sleep. When you blow the trumpet, it's to wake the people up. So, so God comes often in marked ways, in definite ways, and people can say, that's when it began, or that's when the Spirit fell. So he comes suddenly, the Spirit comes suddenly, with a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. That's got to offend some people. I don't like the way the Lord, it'd have to be so intense. Many of us would love revival if it was less intense, less shaking. Sound like the blowing of a violent wind. It came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. God comes to take over that which belongs to him. God's not looking to just have a, a part in your life or a place in your heart. You know, think of getting married and you tell your spouse, well, you will always have a place in my heart. You don't just want a place in your heart among others. He comes and fills the place. He comes and takes over. And there's something about revival which is so overwhelming and so intense that many people reject it because they just want kind of a, a convenient Christianity or what's in it for me faith that they can put in their back pocket and pull out when they need. But that's not the gospel. Jesus didn't die for us just so he could share in our lives. He died for us that we would die to sin and now live for him. That's the gospel. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Your life ends at that moment and you live a new life in God. So he fills, the spirit fills the whole house where they were sitting. They saw, the disciples, what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. No one had ever seen this before. No one had ever experienced this before. God coming in a new and a different way. During the days of the Brownsville revival from 95 to 2000, I wrote a sarcastic poem called Prayer for a Nice Revival. You know, one of the stanzas was, Oh, Lord, come and fill this longing of our soul, but please, oh, Lord, leave us in control. And then another stands, oh, Lord, send your glory, send your power, but uh, please, oh, Lord, keep it to an hour. What's with tongues of fire? What's with this new thing, this different thing? And who asked for fire? We want the power. We want the tongues. We want the anointing. We want the miracles. We didn't ask for fire. Tongues of fire separated, came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak. When the Spirit comes on, you speak. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. And that's the beginning. And the crowds are there, and they hear what's happening, God-fearing Jews from around the world, because they come up three times a year to Jerusalem for the, for the holy days and the feasts, and this is one of those times. So in a moment of time, Jews from all around the world are going to hear the message be able to take it back. And some of them hear the praises of God in their own language. 
And they're amazed because he's just with Galileans, he's local people here. How in the world are they speaking our language? They don't know all of our languages. And others hear the exact same thing and say they're drunk. It's an amazing thing, but you'll see it a hundred times out of a hundred. When God begins to move, it reveals what's in the hearts of people. And you find out those who really want God and those who have different ideas. Those who really want God and those who just have their conventional religion and that's it. I want to focus, though, on tongues of fire and ask that question again, why fire? And, and why do you often hear revival fire? You don't hear revival ice. <laughs> revival coldness, revival lukewarmness, revival fire. It's, it's a constant phrase that you hear. The words go hand in hand. And many years ago, I believe it was 1984, for the first time I preached a message on God being a consuming fire. And as I preached it, I just started going through my head about all the verses in the Bible that associated God with fire. And it made me wonder, why the fire? I mean, Genesis 15, when God makes his covenant with Abram, puts Abram to sleep and makes his covenant, that God is seen as a blazing torch in that chapter. In Exodus 3, when the angel of the Lord appears to Moses, how does he appear? In a burning bush. I mean, why there? Why that manifestation? When God comes down on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and Exodus 24, it says that the appearance on the mountain was God like a consuming fire, a devouring fire. Why did he reveal himself like that? You go to the next book, the book of Leviticus, and it tells us the end of the ninth chapter after Aaron and his sons had offered up sacrifices in obedience to God, what happens? It says that fire comes from the presence of the Lord and consumes the sacrifices. That was God's way of saying yes. And then when Aaron's two eldest sons in the next chapter, the 10th chapter, which happens immediately after, there's no break there, they then offer unauthorized fire, unauthorized incense from the Lord, to the Lord, and the exact same fire comes out from the exact same presence of the Lord and burns them up. First the fire comes and consumes Aaron's sacrifices offered in obedience, and then the same fire comes from the presence of the Lord and consumes Aaron's sons acting in disobedience. When you get to Numbers, you get fiery judgment in the 11th chapter of Numbers, in the 21st chapter of Numbers. When you get to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4.24, what is, what is written there? Our God is a consuming fire. And you say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. That's the God of, of Deuteronomy. Well, that exact same verse is quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews 12, 29. Our God is a consuming fire. Why the fire? Why this constant association of God with fire? In the book of Judges, the sixth chapter, Gideon's sacrifice, consumed with fire, sign of divine approval. 13th chapter of, of, of Judges, the angel of the Lord goes up in fire. It, it's something that's so frequent. You, you just can't miss it. And, and book after book, you go over to 1 Kings, the famous account in 1 Kings 18 with Elijah, when he calls down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. When we do tours to Israel, that, that's one of our first stops is, is Mount Carmel, and I love to, to be up there teaching with the tour group and just talking about Elijah called on fire from heaven here. Think of it. And one of his famous words, let the God who answers by fire be God. 
They were in a drought. Why didn't he just say, let the God who sends rain be God? Why let the God who answers by fire be God? And then in 2 Kings 1, when the king sends messengers to, to, get to get Elijah, he calls down fire on them. And then in the second chapter of 2 Kings, he, he goes up to heaven in chariots of fire. Why so much about fire? You see it in the prophetic books, when you get to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 6, when he encounters the Lord in the temple, and he, and he sees himself as a man of unclean lips. What happens? One of the angels... One of the seraphim, which is actually a fiery being, a fiery angel, comes in and takes tongs from that altar, with, takes a coal and touches it to the prophet's lips to purge him. You know that, that beautiful song a few years back, Take Me Into the Holy of Holies? Take me in by the blood of the Lamb? How many of you know that? Take the coal, touch my lips. And we sing it, our hair, hands raised. Our head kind of cocked to the side, the charismatic style there. With a beautiful smile on our lips. Take the call. Touch my lips. Here I stand. Sing that at a barbecue. Go ahead and sing that at a barbecue. Take the call. Touch my lips. I mean, we sing it like a beautiful lyric. That's a frightful thing. I'm a man of unclean lips. Oh, no, I'm undone. No problem. We have the solution. Fire. Call from the altar. See, this is what happens in revival. We, we, we experience God in a deeper way and suddenly our uncleanness comes to the surface and it gets purged and purified with fire. Isaiah 33, the question is asked, who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with everlasting burnings? And then you know what it says? It's not about hell, it says the law of the pure heart. It's about God. Who can dwell in the presence of God? Described as everlasting burnings. Those who are fleshly and carnal will get burned up and destroyed. Those who are righteous can stand in his presence. Wow. Same in Jeremiah, the fifth chapter, the word of the prophet is like fire that burns up the wood. The 20th chapter, Jeremiah tries to hold the words and it's just too intense, too painful to speak. Tries to hold the word in. He says, it's like fire shut up in my bones. And then what, is, what does God say in Jeremiah 23, 29? Isn't my word like fire and like a hammer that shatters the rock in pieces? Book of Daniel, the seventh chapter. What happens? It's a river of fire coming from the presence of God. Think of that. I mean, that's a spiritual picture of divine reality before his throne, a river of fire. We want this casual faith, this kind of chummy faith. And on the one hand, Jesus is our best friend. And we come to God as Abba. We come to him and pour our hearts out like, like kids. But there's always reverence. We're talking about God. You know, so many people today claim to have all these experiences caught up to the third heaven and meeting with, with God and seeing all these sacred things, etc. And they come back and they're so carnal. How can that be? You know, Paul couldn't even describe the things they were so holy. And the people that I know that seem to have real heaven encounters, they're sobered by it. They're changed for life by it. They talk about it with reverence. Ezekiel, in the 8th chapter, he, he sees a man, and, and, and in Hebrew, the word for man is ish, the word for fire is ish, and sometimes it's, it's hard to know which is which, because the man is burning from head to toe. Why? Because he comes out from the presence of the God who is fire. It's like you take a piece of wood, throw it in the fire, soon enough that wood is, is burning. That's what happens with those who are in the holy presence. Your heart begins to burn. 
What's it say in Malachi, the third chapter? That the Lord whom you seek will come as a refiner's fire and a purifier of gold and silver. It's an amazing passage. The one you seek will come. The one you earnestly desire will come. But then he asks, but who can stand when he appears? You want him to come. You ask him to come. But when he comes, it's hotter than you expect. When I ministered in Finland, I learned that it was part of the national custom in a very cold country to, to go into the sauna or the sauna as it's known there. Many people's homes, there's a, a sauna in the home. Even some hotel rooms had a sauna in them. And some of the men would say, oh yeah, we conduct business in the sauna. It's just a way of life. So this would be an honored thing after a meal, okay, some of the guys were going to go sit in the sauna. And I remember telling them one time, this is good preparation for hell. I mean, I thought, how in the world could you enjoy being in here? And at one point, at one point, I got really used to it. I was in there a few straight times, and I got really used to it, but I was sitting down lower than they were. And one of them said, raise your hand up. And when I did, I thought the thing was going to burn up, and they were comfortable in the midst of that. The fire of revival is often hotter than we expect. We want God to come and bless us, but we don't want him to mess with us. We want him to bless us and make us bigger and better and more prosperous and more healthy and, and, and everything going well in our lives, but we don't want God to start to get into the thought life that we have or our secret habits or our ways of life. You know, one of the disturbing things about revival is when you leave the service, God gets in the car with you. Oh, yeah. It says in Malachi 3 that he'll come as a refiner's fire and, and, and like a fuller soap, the, a longer soap. So, you know, in, in the ancient world and still in some parts of the world today, the clothes are washed a certain way. And when we would be in India, my early times going to India, I've been there 27 times, but in the early times going, we'd, we'd go for three weeks and then for a month. So I went there several times for months straight. So you, you bring a certain amount of clothes and then you have to get them washed while you're there. And I'd be preaching at night in suit and tie or, or, or dress shirt with tie and some of the meetings we were in. So I'd have all these white shirts with me. And then we'd stay at one hotel and they'd say, okay, bring, put all your laundry in a bag outside the door and they're going to pick it up and bring it back later in the day. And when it would come later in the day, it was all folded, it was all nice. But I would notice the shirts, would, some of the buttons were cracked. Some were actually missing. I thought, what, what happened to the buttons on my shirt? One day, we were in a hotel. There was a Muslim festival going on in the town. It cut us off from the folks that were trying to pick us up. So we just got stuck in the hotel for the day. A colleague and I couldn't leave. But out behind our house, there was a fuller. There was a launderer. They normally work at rivers, places of, of running water. But if they don't have that, they just got all these buckets. So I'm watching these guys. Brutal heat of the day. And, and they're, they're washing clothes. And I'm, I'm watching, they, they take one of somebody's shirt, not well, it was mine, but somebody's shirt, and they plunge it in the soapy water and take it out and then, then wash it and wring it, start to wring it, wring it in the clean water. And then next thing, there's a rock there, and they start hitting this thing on the rock with all their might. And then from there, they're hanging out in the sun to dry. So first thing I realized, that's what's happening to my buttons. <laughs> Second thing, I started to think of Malachi 3. 
oh, Lord, I just, I want to draw closer to you, Lord. I just ask you, Lord, the stuff in my life is just not right. Will you just help me with that? You bet. <laughs> there it is. On the rock. I don't mean God putting cancer on us or killing us in car accidents. I don't mean that at all. I mean, he starts to deal with us on the inside. I ask you to bless, bless my marriage. I didn't ask you to tell me what's wrong in my life. I ask you to change her, not deal with me. But that's what happens when, when God starts coming and, and, and the conviction starts rising. I was mentioning to some of the brothers today over lunch that we'd have pastors. I'd see them years after visiting revival in Pensacola. And they would tell me, tell me years later, they said, you know, I brought my people to the revival because they needed a touch. The people in my church, they needed a touch from God. He said, so I, I bring them there. He said, and then he said the altar call came the first night. So there's the pastor with his people, right? First night, he's under such conviction, he's the first one to run up and repent at the altar. So I mean, the congregation's wondering what's going on in the pastor's life. <laughs> See some monstrous sinner. He's there weeping at the altar. It's just God's dealing with him. Maybe he'd become professional and lost his passion. Maybe he'd become judgmental. Maybe whatever it was, prayerless. Who knows? Or maybe there was some sinful stronghold in his life. Next thing, he's weeping at the altar, and, and these people tell me years later, he said, I felt like I got saved all over again. One day, I was at my computer looking at something. I was, I was looking for a site that I'd been to, so I just hit Control-H, which gets me to the history. So this is all the sites I've been to recently. And whatever I'd done, I... It could have been some mind, you ever have a mindless thing, you start, oh, I wonder what this is, it leads you to this, leads you to this, leads you to this. You just take like three minutes, you're pursuing the thing, it could just be some ad, or, you know, some health thing, it could be some news report, it could be some sports, whatever. It's just a couple minutes. And I went back and looked, it's like, all those. And it struck me, you know, we tell the Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm basically a good person. I'm I'm clean. I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that. And God says, let's just look at your thought life. Just put that on the screen, and, and suddenly we're buried by our guilt. The fact is, God knows stuff about us that we don't even know. And on our very, very best and holiest day, we live by grace. And God's not out to destroy us. He does want to bless us. He does want to help us. He does want to do good. But when you really come to him... There's going to be fire. There's going to be purging. There's going to be purifying. You know, in the New Testament, in, in Matthew's Gospel, when John the Immerser, John the Baptist, is preaching, in Matthew 3, 10, and 12, he talks about the fire of judgment for those who won't repent. But in Matthew 3, 11, he says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit in fire, just like you have in Acts, the second chapter. The Holy Spirit and fire. And it's the same way when, when God comes to the tabernacle in Exodus 40. There's a cloud, pillar of cloud, and pillar of fire. When Solomon dedicates the temple in 2 second, in, 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 uh, second Chronicles, the 5th chapter. Then in 1 Kings, the 7th chapter. What do you have? Fire. You've got the cloud of God's glory and fire. Same here. In Acts 2, he'll baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. Mark, the ninth chapter, Jesus says, every sacrifice will be salted with fire. Jesus says in, in Luke 12, I've come to bring fire. 
He comes again in 2 Thessalonians 1 in flaming fire, Revelation 4, before the throne, seven lamps burning. This, this is part of who God is. What does fire speak of? It, it, it speaks of judgment on sin. It speaks of purity. It speaks of refining. It, it, it speaks of passion, the fire of love. And what happens with the refiner's fire, it's superheated. And, and, and you throw in there gold or silver, it looks pretty good. You throw it in the superheated fire, and next thing, all the impurities rise to the surface. I don't like to see that in my life. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. I, I hate that. And many of us would rather just not go through it, rather ignore it. Like how many of you avoid going to the doctor because you don't want to get a bad report? Or avoid getting on the scale because you don't want to see what it says? Or, or avoid getting something reviewed because you don't want a, a negative report? Many of us keep a certain distance from God because we know if we really draw near to him, we're going to have to confess sin to somebody. We're going to have to come clean about that affair. We're going to have to deal with this issue. We're going to have to confess to this. The good news is when, when we do, the impurities come to the surface so they can be removed, so we can shine for Jesus. It's probably January of last year, so a little bit before COVID. I was preaching in California fine congregation, maybe about 6,000 people, very much involved in reaching out to the lost. They, they had a burden to reach the lost as well as to meet with God. And they wanted me to minister on revival. We were having a Friday night service. And I, I preached on revival. I preached on God coming as a refiner's fire, opened up Malachi 3. And that night, I went back to my room, and as I was praying, I began to see every fleshly thing in myself. But where is this coming from? I, I mean, just attitudes that I didn't think I had anymore, and then pride or selfishness. I think, where is this coming from? This is miserable. Is this really me? And then I realized, what'd you just preach on? <laughs> what'd you just talk about? Now it's happening to you. God wants to bring this stuff up. It may not be dominant in your life, but there's junk there. God wants to get out. And in the normal course of life, it doesn't get removed. And so God comes with fire. God comes with intensity, not to hurt us, not to destroy us, but to purify us so we can shine. You know, it's just like when the doctor discovers, ah, oh, you've got this infection. Let's deal with it. Yeah, I felt so run down for so many months. We've isolated the problem, and that thing goes. You feel like a new person. That's what God wants to do. And when he comes... It's always going to be different than we expect in some ways and more than we expect in some ways. In this book, Time for Holy Fire, which was earlier called From Holy Laughter to Holy Fire, America on the Edge of Revival, the book came out March of 1995. I finished it towards the end of 1994. And it came out in March of 1995. And, and I, I want you to hear something, and I want to show you a video clip. But I was trying to give a description, one last description of what revival was like and visitation was like. Remember, this was before the fire fell in Brownsville. And in that five-year period, more than three million people, cumulative attendance came through those doors. 
More than 300,000 different people responded to the altar calls. People came from over 130 nations. We get online at 6 in the morning to wait for the doors to open at 6 at night, for the service to start at 7 at night, to go to midnight or 1 in the morning. This went on for years. So this is what I wrote. Once, while preaching near Buffalo, I visited Niagara Falls together with Jennifer, our older daughter. As we walked along the bank towards the falls, there was a clear, strong tide pulling the waters along. The thought struck me, that is the state of a growing church. It is progressing and moving forward, but that is not revival. Then we got nearer to the falls. The flowing stream had turned into raging rapids. The water was capped with white waves, and the tide was almost violent in its pull. Again, the thought came to mind. That is what most of us today call revival. It's a great increase over the normal state of things. Much more is happening, and it looks really exciting, but it's still not revival. Then we came to the falls. They were absolutely awesome. I'd seen them as a little boy, but the reality was so much more powerful than the memory. They were not just grand and impressive, they were staggering. But I wasn't just content to see the falls, I wanted to experience them. So Jennifer and I joined a group of other interested tourists, went out some big yellow raincoats, left our shoes in a locker, and went down to the rocks at the base of the falls. The closer we got, the more overwhelming it became. Torrents of water, so much water, crashed like thunder. In a moment, we were soaked. The wind, where did it all come from? It blew so hard it actually took our breath away. We were no longer spectators. We were participants, caught up in the pounding, swirling, churning, flooding display of natural glory. There, in a face-to-face -face encounter with the raw power of God, with the majesty of the Creator exploding all around me, I could only raise my hands and praise him who lives forever and ever. I was swallowed up in the falls. That is a picture of revival. Are you ready? Three months later, the fire fell in Pensacola, and everything changed after that. Friends, there has to be a deep enough desire for God in our lives that we say, whatever the cost, whatever the consequence, come, Lord. There has to be a deep enough dedication of our lives that we get on the altar. Right? Romans 12. We are living sacrifices. It's not a matter of just offering a sacrifice. We get on the altar. I heard a story as a new believer about a man at Niagara Falls. And he had a rope hung from one side of the falls to the other. And there was a crowd watching because he was going to push a wheelbarrow across the rope and come back. And he said to the crowd, how many believe I could do it? Uh, very few here, yeah, I don't think so. So he gets out slowly, one foot in front of the other, walks across with the wheelbarrow, gets to the other side, they're all cheering wildly, gets all the way back, comes out there clapping, cheering wildly. And he says, how many believe I could do it again? Yeah! He goes, how many trust me? Yeah! Then get in the wheelbarrow. God just is, doesn't want just our affirmation of faith. 
He's saying get in the wheelbarrow. 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died for us, died for all that, all who died, all of us, would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose from the dead. Colossians 3, you're dead and your life is now hidden with the Messiah in God. Wow. Following Jesus is an awesome thing. Being a child of God is an awesome thing. And it says in Hebrews, the first chapter, speaking of the angels, but can apply to us, he makes his ministers, his servants, flames of fire. John 5, it says, John, John the Baptist was a lamp that burned. Jesus says, touch you're the light of the world. That means we've got to burn. I, I want to give you a picture of, of what things looked like, of the level of hunger and thirst that was there. Just meeting with some of our grads who might well have been in this service in 1998. This was the night when Steve Hill, the evangelist, was not preaching. And I preached a message called Holy Desperation. It was a message on spiritual hunger and yearning and longing for God. And then at the end of the service, there was a call. We had people packing the main sanctuary and then the, the chapel and buildings next door. So there, there were folks watching everywhere. And it was a call for complete surrender. And for those who were hungry for God, those who weren't right with God, to come and respond. So I, I just want you to see the, the end, the tail end of the message before the altar call, and then the altar call, just to give you an idea of some of the hunger and intensity and desire that was there. Let's go ahead. Oh, friends, it's so close. I felt this at different times in my life, but it's all over me now. It's so close, I can just about get a hold of it. And I'm going to give a simple call. If you don't know Jesus, this is for you. This is your time to come and to cry out to God in whatever way you know how. If you're backslidden, if you're bound by sin, this is your time to come. But every single one in the balcony, in the choir loft, in the main section here, I don't care if you're on the platform, I don't care who, now is the time to come. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, if you just have to see a breakthrough, if you can't live any longer the way you've been living, if you must see God come and change you and change your surroundings and come and power and visit, I want you to get to this altar right now from all over this building. I don't want you to wait for a minute, and when you get down, get on your knees and begin to cry out to God. Begin to lift your voice to God. Begin to lift your voice to God. Come down. Come down from the balcony. Find a place. Get up close. Get up close. Step out. When it gets filled, fill the aisles. Come on. Oh! I can't let you go. I won't let you go until you bless me. This is between you and God. This is between you and God. This is between you and God. No one else can do it for you. From the balcony, if you're hungry and thirsty, step out from the pews. If you're not right with God, if you don't know Him, if you were to die right now and you're lost, get on your knees and say, God, save me. God, help me. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you're backslidden, if you're cold, if you're bound by sin, I tell you, the Bible is clear. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears. Oh, lift your voice. Ushers, help me. Get him down the aisles. Oh, God. If this is different for you, cry out however you know how. Oh, 
this. I gotta get hold of you. So that's a picture of hunger, that's a picture of thirst, and those altar calls could go on and on and people crying out, and they left changed. It's not a matter of just adding God in, a little extra here or there. It's a matter of saying, God, send the fire. Burn out of me everything displeasing. Burn out of me everything destructive. Light a fresh fire of passion, fresh fire of holiness, fresh fire of love for you, fresh revelation of the fire of God's love for us. So here's what we're going to do. I, w- I want us to take a few minutes to just cry out to the Lord together, all right? And, and then I, I want to pray first for, for leaders that are here, just for a, a fresh touch, a fresh baptism, the Holy Spirit and fire. And then between us, we want to pray for everyone that wants prayer, all right? So stand to your feet with me. Thank you, Father. No hype. No attempt to work anybody up. But if you're hungry and thirsty, and if you want the fire of God to fall in your own life, then come on up, and let's just spend a few minutes in prayer. And let's pray as if we mean it. Just begin to look to God. If it's quiet, if it's loud, it doesn't matter. But engage your heart. Don't be distracted. Don't think about anybody else. But if you're desperate, let that desperation come out. If you've been living a certain way for years and you can't live like that any longer. You can't live a double life. You you just can't live like that any longer. Cry out to God. Say, tonight you've got to set me free. Tonight's got to be the night. Tonight's got to be the night. God, send your fire. God, send your fire. Oh, God, hear the cry of your people. Hear the cry of your people. Pray as if the next five minutes, God's looking at your life to say, are you serious? Do you really mean it? I'm going to answer you according to the degree of your desire. Let it be heard. Let it be heard.